This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you for coming and thank you for your enthusiasm and your interest in contemporary music as a composer who is living. Uh, I think <laughs> <laughs> enthusiasm. And it has been said that you can pay your debt to the composers by doing something for those of us who are actually here in the present. You've been listening to um, a bit of Elliot Carter's Street Quartet No. 5. This is actually another living composer. He turns 100 shortly. He's 99. And I read in the New York Times an uh, interview with him a few years ago where he said, this was like, at, this was like Elliot Carter at 96, still cranking out music, still composing every day. And he said something like, uh, on days when I don't compose, I get very tired. <laughs> Which I really love, so I'm really inspired for that. Now, um, the, this, this piece actually you can hear January 9th, Pacifica Quartet, who are part of the Library Arts series this year, will be playing this piece. There is a problem, though, which is it's a bad piece. Um, it's, it's, it's not a good piece, and I, and, I, and I have some reasons to defend my, my uh, argument that this is a bad piece. Okay, first of all, the lyrics were very uninteresting. Okay? I think this is still playing here. The words are very boring. Okay. Second thing, the guitar solo is rather unimpressive. Okay, and then uh, lastly, I couldn't dance. Okay, so these are some criticisms about Ellie Curtis' string project. Now I'd like to turn to this. Um, you may not have expected to see this tonight. How many people have, have seen this before or even experienced this? It's, um, okay, yeah, this is a kind of confection. Um, it's also a bad. Um, it's also a bad thing. It's a bad product. And I'll tell you why. Number one, um, it's not particularly useful for repairing my flat tire. Um, it was just totally useless, and so uh, so I would argue it's bad. Um, secondly, it's an ineffective cure for leprosy. <laughs> Uh, there's probably somebody here from like the medical school who has some. No, because actually there's a property. I don't know, but I took a chance in, uh, uh, with that one. And then lastly, it didn't improve my elbow, so it didn't advance my law career at all. Okay. Now this uh, this this was kind of a little bit of a silly. Um, uh, in both cases, both my comments about uh, Ellie Carter's fifth string quartet and then my comments about this uh, this candy bar thing were a bit, you know, ridiculous, right? And why is that? It's because we really need to ask the question, what is it trading on? So what are the things, when I say trading on, you have, presumably you have some money, right? And then you, like, you want to exchange that for something else. And so in the case of this, you're buying this candy bar. In the case of Ellie Carter's string quartet or, you know, maybe you're purchasing a CD or you're buying a ticket to the live there so you hear that piece. And so you're making a trade, right? And so let's just have a quick discussion about this thing. So if you were going to trade some of your money for this, what kinds of features are you interested in? I'm guessing you're not interested in some sort of panacea for leprosy. I'm guessing that if you have a flat tire, you're calling AAA, you're not going to the, you know, the drugstore or the, you know, the convenience store to pick up some chocolate. Or maybe you're just like so depressed by the whole situation, you need to drown your sorrows in some sort of sugar. I suppose that's possible. But, you know, and so forth. So what, what, are, the, what are the good things about this? What do you think the, the Reese's company is interested in? What do you think they care about? What do you think they have invested you know, their energy and attention to? Just shout out any features about this. Taste. Flavor, taste, yeah. Health <coughs> oh. food. Health food. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know that 
they would make that argument, uh, but I'm delighted that, that you have. Makes you fat. I'm sorry? Yeah, let's make you fat. Makes you fat. So maybe you have like a, a, a too low fat diet, and, or you're, you have some sort of like thing where you, like obesity is like this ideal that you have and you're going through that. Okay, fine. What else? Chocolate and peanut butter. Sugar, so like, and then chocolate with chocolate, chocolate and peanut butter. butter. So it's got like multiple components. Right? And you like those things, right? Anyone here like allergic to the peanut butter? Like you'll die if you... Here's one. Okay, so like for you, not so good, right? So I mean obviously these are subject to uh, people's uh, taste and, 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 and biology and so forth. What other qualities are uh, does Reese's care about? Comfort. Yeah. Com comfort, right, okay, what else? Well there's two of them, so you could share it. There's two of them, so it's shareable. And also, like again, this duality thing with the you know we have like this kind of like stratification things, the simultaneity of the of the of the, the chocolate and the peanut butter. I think they have some argument about that. And then you have this duality mimicked again in the two-ness of it, which is obviously sure. So there's this whole community aspect. Thank you. What else? Portable. That's that's a that's a nice feature. Right? Affordable. I'm sorry. Affordable. Affordable. Yeah, it's not a huge investment. And back to the portable thing. You know, it also, did anyone notice it like the little cups come in a little liner? So like there's a packaging thing, but like, you know, so you have this exterior condition, but then there's this internal one and that helps you like, you know, it's like there's like a local portability issue too, as well as the more global one. What else? What about the packaging? The color. Yeah, I mean, maybe orange isn't your favorite color, but like I think Reese's is, is like somebody spent some time designing this. And what do you notice about it? What's nice about it? Other than, I mean, the design. The contrast of the colors. The contrast of the colors, right? What else? The italics. The italics are nice. Yeah, I like that. This little cup hard to open. It's hard to open. <laughs> you think that they actually are going for that? <laughs> this might be in the this might be in the pejorative column, but I mean, you know, it may it may be true. Chocolate brown. Chocolate brown. Yeah. So you have this sort of iconicity, this connection, this emblematic thing. What else? Well, the emblem of the cup, but it also looks like a crown. That's right. It looks like a crown. So it has this. I mean, like maybe there's a bunch of like monarchists or something. No, but I think it's just. I think it's just a. You know, there is something regal about it. That condition of that ridging thing. Do you see that repeated anywhere? On the side. On the side. So it's this horizontal thing, and there's this vertical thing. So I promise you, somebody has spent time really thinking about this and working on all these these things, as well as you know any other number of components. Now, I mean, this is not to say that, that these these things we've named in and of themselves make this a successful product, right? But I think we could. I think I think it's safe to say that the company that's making this is is attempting to get your money. They're attempting to trade for some of the features that we've named, as well as some others. Okay? And they're not attempting to, to make a claim that this is going to help you fix your, they're not trying to move into like the car, the tire fixing market. That's not like their turf. They're not really concerned about that. Similarly, Elliot Carter, you know, we said this was bad, but you know, we have to ask the question, what is it trading on? And so it might help to know something about Elliot Carter. Like for example, uh, Jenny Bilfield and I were just talking about the second string quartet. Um, for which uh, Elliot Carter uh, received his first of two Pulitzer Prizes. The second uh, Pulitzer Prize was then for the third string quartet. And that's a piece from the 1950s that um, is, is really uh, important because it, it's, it's really one of the main early pieces in Elliot Carter's output where he established himself as a composer famous for what might be called character patterns. In that piece in the quartet, the first violinist is incredibly virtuosic is really showy. Meanwhile, the second violinist is like the timekeeper, very laconic, just really terse, 
small, concise statements, not showing off at all, keeping a kind of a pulse. The, 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 the violist is like overly sentimental and romantic and maudlin and, and, and you know, has this kind of quality, very emotional. And then the, uh, the cellist has this strange erratic property where, where he or she is actually pushing and pulling the tempo, sometimes speeding up, sometimes slowing down. And it's like four individuals all together. It makes a coherent whole, but you have the stratification of these different kinds of personalities. Okay? And so when you know that about elevated music, you can start to actually hear this again in his fifth string quartet. And you can start to maybe appreciate, oh, that's kind of something that he was after. Um, there's another thing about this string quartet, which is really interesting in the structure. It has various passages, about, about 12 sections, that alternate between these kinds of quartet statements that are sort of linked, where the players are linked together, and then these moments where the players actually sound, and it's deliberately composed this way, they sound as if they're practicing little passages that you then hear echoed later in a coordinated section. So it's, this, it's almost like this kind of like eavesdropping, this voyeuristic look into the rehearsal room. Did anyone mention you know, the orchestra when they're warming up before you know, the lights go down? And they're all like, you know, you know, sort of like uh, playing their, their little passages and trying to get, get everything in their hands. So if you know that, you know, you wouldn't, you know, that that's an intentional thing and that Carter's interested in this stratification of personalities, then maybe it's not so bad. Maybe in fact, it's good. Okay, so um, let's turn to my music, which is always fun as a narcissist. Um, so, I, you know, I would hope that when asking the question um, at the Meridian Arts Ensemble concert, again, Live of the Arts, uh, February 24th, that's a Sunday afternoon concert, please do come to that. Um, if you're asking the question, is this good or bad, I would hope that similarly, you wouldn't like take your baggage about what you're interested in. I mean, why should I, why should I care about what you're interested in? You should, the whole point of this, and again, this is the egocentric sort of thing uh, manifesting itself. You should be concerned with what I'm interested in, right? And you should try to meet my piece on that, on that ground. Now, you, that doesn't mean that you have to like my piece. That doesn't mean that you have to buy the CD. That doesn't mean that you have to commission an, an, a subsequent piece from me because you were so overwhelmed with my genius. <laughs> you know, you can hate it. That's fine. But I would appreciate you actually uh, at least at first approaching it and then asking, you know, trying to understand a little bit about what my values are, what some of my compositional interests in it are. And so I should turn to this because to tell you a little bit more about this piece, because this is a sound sculpture that I developed. It's an instrument, it's a musical instrument, it's an instrument that I'll be playing on February 24th with the Meridian Arts Ensemble. Magnetic North is a piece that's a concerto for me. It's a, the fourth in a series of concerti that I've composed that feature this sound sculpture that I've built called the Mouseketeer, which is an instrument made of junk and hardware and found objects mounted on electroacoustic soundboards. And I play these things with chopsticks and wind-up toys and violin bows and plectra and knitting needles and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's intended, actually, as a visual art object. I call it a sound sculpture. But it, at the same time, it's, it has these arresting sonic properties. Let's hear a little bit of um, a passage of a different piece. This is an improvisation from 2003. And this is the Mouseketeer you're listening to. Playing threaded rods, springs, every so often. And then there are some electronics that I have to warp and transform the sound. I've got door stops, I've got shoehorns, I've got astroturf, I've got that um, squeaky wheels, combs. All the combs I own are on my sound 
playing flotation bowl give you an idea about the scale there I am playing it. This is actually at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Too, 
but the ensemble has these certain kinds of notations that allow them to change local morphological details, like this measure, where this is a very specific note in the tuba. Ray Walton will play this, but he can play it anywhere within the duration of this 3-8 bar. So as a result, that note may or may not come before the two notes that the trombone plays. It might be coming in exact coordination one night, another night before, and another night after. So this is a bad way of building in a need for you to hear my music more often. <laughs> <laughs> this thing is just a graphic bit that has no explanation except it's 2.5 seconds long. And the ensemble has to interpret that in some, in, in some way. So I'm actually really dragging them into my dimension with the, with the, with the soloist responding to graphics. And then finally, this thing on the, on the right page, well, that's actually, um, that actually is a reference to this, which are these custom wristwatches that I made, um, have fabricated uh, at a wristwatch company. And we're all wearing them. And so in that measure, everyone <coughs> takes their instrument out of their mouth and then looks down at their watch and responds accordingly. And so as the second hand passes the various glyphs, those tell us to do certain things, how many articulations to make, whether to make vocal sounds, whether to move our feet on the floor, and so forth. And this is actually the, uh, a detail of what they're looking at. In fact, the S there at the top is used, th this happens three times during the course of the piece, where the third time that they, we refer to our wristwatches, the person whose second hand passes the S is appointed as soloist in another bar one minute later in the piece. So there's like these weird contingencies that happen. So to play this kind of piece, is, this is a new kind of engagement, I think, between a composer and an ensemble. And one of the important things here is that there is this incredibly rapid mercurial change among elements here. So not only is the style of the music changing rapidly, the, the, the notational construct, the way in which I'm using a written tradition mixed with certain imitations to do things spontaneously, this is constantly changing. And, one of, and that's Meridian Arts Ensemble are really quite extraordinary at that. This, you know, we, I could tell you that this probably comes from an earlier piece of mine called Janus, which I composed in 1992. And I thought I'd play you the opening of it. This is a, a much more conventional piece. It's scored uh, with regular, normal, you know, conventional notation. Um, it's for five winds and five strings. But what you'll notice is the musical discourse keeps changing at unexpected times, but fairly frequently the music is interrupted and then it's replaced by a new kind of music. Let's listen to maybe a minute of the opening. <laughs> Thank you. 
classic Warner Brothers cartoons. This is from a Roadrunner cartoon. Remember Bugs Bunny? And of course, the narrative, the, the visual imagery is constantly fractured. First, like, Bugs is, you know, dancing in this bucolic field of flowers, but Elmer Fudd is coming in with his, uh, his rifle. So there's actually precedent all the way, all the way back way back to the 1950 for this kind of thing, where you have this kind of musical discourse that's constantly, you know, fractured and interrupted and, and, and so forth. Um, so in pink, I've been naming the, the ensembles in the Lively Art series that are playing the pieces. And so since this is my piece, I thought I would just optimistically name a famous ensemble from Germany and then propose a date, and then just see if it could happen. <laughs> but I just thought I'd Okay, um, so let's turn uh, much of our attention tonight for the rest of the lecture to um, a featured ism, okay? And this is an ism that appears to, to, to underscore a number of the pieces in the upcoming series, the Lavender series, and that is minimalism, so-called musical minimalism. And so I thought what, what I would do is to take you on a tour of some of the ideas in musical minimalism. I'm turning as hard as it is for me and for you. I'm turning away from my music now. And, I'm, and, and we're going to talk about some various composers, some of whom um, you're we're going to hear in the various concerts um, in the upcoming uh, and past concerts of this year's uh, Lively Art series. Let's start with Terry Riley, who has um, a performance coming up, his Sun Rings, which will be performed with the Chronos Quartet on January 18th. I thought it would be interesting to start with Terry Riley because he's a famous so-called American minimalist, and um, I don't know his Sun Rings, um, but uh, his piece in C is really uh, a really important, iconic, um, uh, sort of like uh, seminal work in the minimalist catalog. It consists of these 53 little musical motives, right? That an ensemble of instruments can play any number of players, um, and basically they. What begins is a, um, uh, a regular pulsation played in the top octave of the piano, the top two Cs, okay? Da, 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 da. I don't have perfect pitch, so that might not be C, but it's, it's going about that tempo, right? And then to that, or against that, the players, when they're ready, they play, they play motive one, and they keep repeating motive one, that melodic fragment, against that pulsation. And at their own tempo, when they're ready, they move on to two, and so forth. Performances of this often last an hour or so. Um, so these things have a, a tremendous scale. Let's hear a little bit of this thing. What you'll notice is that you'll hear um, that there are these different players who are, you know, there's, there becomes this kind of tapestry or this collision of the players moving on at different times and uh, to different uh, uh, materials.
Um, it's made up of these rather simple, if you minimal, if you will, materials. Okay, and um, but what what results is actually kind of a complex and also in some respects slightly unpredictable result. Okay, that's made up of these individuals following a pretty simple set of rules, or you know, a, you know, uh, a cheat, you know, uh, responding to a pretty straightforward set of tasks. Let's move on to another composer, another famous so-called American minimalist. By the way, these composers, for the most part, hate the term minimalism. Um, minimalism is a term that's, um, that's, that's been used by critics, and it's stuck in the um, fascination of the American and international public. And so, there's, for better and worse, they're stuck with it. You can really ask the question, what kind of, what sense of, what's, what minimal aspects are being invoked when we talk about musical minimalism? And I think, I bring this up specifically in the case of John Adams, whose early music, like this piece, which I love very much, Shaker, Shaker Loops, um, exhibits certain kinds of pulsating uh, characteristics that we associate with a lot of uh, minimalism, but whose later work, whose recent work in particular, um, is, I would say, ex extraordinarily diverse and um, really problematizes that, um, that, that label, that, uh, that moniker. Let's listen to, back to this um, Shaker Loops. With, it has incredible energy, great vitality. Listen to the strings here in this piece. <laughs> Just short excerpts from this piece. 
and you'll listen to the, notice the op opening, um, how it begins with something very simple, and by and by you can track the changes. Okay, that's another thing that I think a lot of the early minimal version is interested in. They notice that Mozart is beautiful and elegant, but you can't actually apprehend, you can't actually take in all of the detail. Whereas if you strip things down, you can really notice when something is changing, when the next occurrence happens. Okay. So we begin again with a pulsation. Later, you do if you listen to some of the or some kind of miniature or some kind of kind of statement. 
uh, maybe Richard Serra's uh, huge uh, sculptures um, are, are, are an apt analogy, which really dwarf a person. If you look, if you look at this, I don't know if you can see it on there. There's these kinds of like qualities to the metal that are um, quite detailed um, uh, when you look up close. I don't even, I'm not certain to what extent all of the aspects of the surface of those of those metal sheets are deliberate or just subject to aging and other kinds of environmental factors. But regardless of their intention, they're quite interesting as you get up close. Um, I should move ahead. You hear you get a sense of scale, right? And so the human is really dwarfed by these things. It's actually been a criticism of some of these work. Not all minimal pieces are long, by the way. We're going to play a short one for you. But this is a, this is actually some raffia cloth. This is actually my living room. Um, these, these are very tall um, uh, pieces that, that my wife and I found while traveling in Africa. And what I like about them is the fact that, especially this middle, this, this center one, and I'll do a close-up here. What you find is a kind of pattern, right, that is regular, but it's not quite regular, right? I mean, there's like near symmetry, and for me that's very provocative and very emotionally stimulating. And even when you find something that seems to make sense, you find these, if, like reading from the top down, you see the square with the, the red square with the X, or the kind of pink code with the X, and then you get the X on the right, but then what happens on the bottom one on the left? It's not a square, it's just a kind of vertical. It's not an X, it's kind of vertical. And what about the sort of checkerboard pattern? If we look at the bottom right corner, and we look all the way to the bottom right of the bottom right, we have dark, and then light, and then dark and light. And you see that in the next one, dark, light, dark, light. But what happens on the, the, the highest checkerboard? Light, dark. So it's just things are kind of reversed, and this is quite interesting. And I think that this is maybe a little bit of an analogy to some of these kinds of minimal patternings that you find where there's something that's just a little bit different and that's kind of exciting and moving when, when that happens. Um, there's also some sort of basic kinds of formulas that are sometimes applied that create, you know, when you have a simple kind of algorithm that's applied to some sort of idea and it generates, there's a warping in a sense or there's a transformation and that creates a wrinkle that's noteworthy and exciting. It's another example, right? There's probably a, there's probably a computer, a pro, there's probably a, you could probably describe this in an algorithm fairly simply with like a, one or two lines of code to sort of generate this idea, I'm guessing, right? But, but, it's, but it actually is, has another level that's, I think, very sophisticated. This turns us, uh, takes us to 1972, and I promised you that there were short pieces of minimalism, and I thought we'd actually have a live demonstration, a performance of this piece, which, whose instrumentation is actually quite minimal, too. It's for two people and their hands clapping, and uh, so we're gonna actually do a little performance. The way that it, here's the, here's the entire score. This is the entire piece. And what you find is, at the top, in the first measure, you have clapper number one and clapper number two, and they're doing the same thing. Three, three impulses, followed by a rest. Followed by two impulses, followed by a rest. Followed by one, a rest, two, and then a rest. It sounds like Okay, well, we have an echo in here that's gonna be slightly challenging. Um, it looked empty. You know, I made a little graphic thing for those of you who don't read music. So we have, on the red, you, you clap, right? One, two, three, one, two, one, one, two. And then you simply repeat it. He wants you to repeat it 12 times. We're only going to repeat it four times um, for an even more abbreviated performance. And then what he does is, in, to get to, from bar one to bar two, he takes the second person, the second clapper, takes that idea and shifts it back. Here's my PowerPoint. Did you see that? Did you see what happened? We shifted it back, and what do we do with the thing that's sticking off the end? We take it, and we move it to the other end, and so now it looks like this. So this is actually 
var 2. So let's put the 2 there, right? And so the second person is going da 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 So it's a different rhythm, while the first person stays exactly where they are. Now, if we repeat this another dozen times, what's going to happen? Well, eventually, this is what this this is the kind of this is what we happens by the time we get to six, and by the time we get to twelve, it looks like this. And then you find that if you move, look at number twelve. If you move the bottom line to the left on number twelve, one more impetus, one more time, you're going to get to thirteen, which is precisely the same as one. This is a technique called phase shift. So please join me in wel welcoming my student uh, freshman here at Stanford, Ruben Moss, who's going to clap, attempt to clap this with me. Groups of three, eight groups of three, right? 
And let's listen to an example of how we might count this here in uh, the, the kind of the three theme in this piece. Right? Okay. So we have that. Um, and what happens actually is that sometimes um, there's another instrument that's playing every other one of those. So you get this other instrument in pink one, one, three, two, one, you know, one, two, three, one. One, two, three, two, one, three, one, two, three, right? So you have this every other thing, and that creates an interesting kind of um, rhythm. Let's call that idea the three idea, okay, in this piece. And then we can have a four idea, which would be, um, you know, uh, dividing the 24 beats into six groups of four. Let's hear uh, what that might sound like. That was the first one. Here comes the four idea. Okay, and then we can have even a five idea, and the five idea, you're wondering, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Well, the five idea is four fives, and then the last one we, lo we lop off a beat, because it's, we still only have 24 beats to work with, so it's four fives and a four, and it sounds a little bit like this. done here is, and then you can imagine a six idea, um, that's a pretty simple sort of um, one, two, right? So it's uh, three, three, uh, four groups of six. So what I've done, let's move those ideas up there, these building blocks as it were. And this is in a sense this, the entire movement of this piece. Um, I put three in parentheses because he doesn't do the, um, the pink line. So it's just the one, two, three, one, two, three without that sort of extra thing going on. And the four slash three means at that moment, he actually does a hybrid. The first 12 beats of those 24, he does as four. And the last 12, he switches to three. So he kind of does half plus half in that one. And the four plus, the four three plus with an exclamation point means that he actually does a 25 beat pattern there, where he does 12 beats divided into four. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So three groups of four. And then you're expecting Four groups of three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But that last one is a four. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So that's actually a 25 beat structure that he does. And I got so excited, I needed punctuation. Okay. So let me see if I can attempt to um, play through this for you and, um, and kind of count it out and, um, and spacebar through these things too. So red is where we are. Let's try this, okay?
artsy concert space. Apex Twin associated Richard D. James associated with techno music, more of a dance club kind of space. Um, let's listen to this electronic record. It's from 1994. I have no idea. This by chance, this might be what uh, a version that Alarm will sound with, will play with their acoustic instrumentation, their own version of it. But I'm, I'm guessing it will be some other piece. But just a little bit of Apex Twin. structures 
um, iterative things and so forth. But what he's especially interested in, 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 a, in not all, but a great deal of his work, and Joe you know, Shakespeare is no exception, are things that are happening in different tempi simultaneously. So you get a pulse that's going at one speed, and then like something else is going at another speed. You know, like this is like we can hear polyrhythms like five against three. So I've got five going in my right hand for every three in my left hand. Are you with me? Let's count my right hand. Your left, my right. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. With me. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two. For some of you are cheating. One, two, three, four, five. One, two. Okay, good. Now let's count my left hand. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One. That's a difference. Or if you, or if you'd rather see it, here is. Let's conduct it. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. And let's put three against that. So I've got my five going. It's like it's just it's kind of a party trick. Like. <laughs> so I've got these different tempi going and stuff like that. And it, it, if that's blowing your mind, that's good because then then I, I feel good about that I've impressed you. But more important, you are ready to hear Michael Gordon's uh, Yo Shakespeare and appreciate the idea that something will be coming in in one tempo and then you'll hear something else come in in a very different tempo. Let's try to find this here. <coughs> current 
pithy comment about foreign policy here. I won't, but, but anyway, there was like there there were some difficult things for him, and so he chose he could go to Mexico or Canada, and he chose Mexico, and so he kind of was self-exiled to Mexico City, where and he, and he actually lived in the neighborhood like next to Diego Rivera and Trotsky until the ice pick thing happened. But then the point is that he had this player piano set up. And um, he was, and he had, and he was writing these pieces with these impossible things that would be impossible for humans to do. But of course, the player piano could manifest it. He could punch way more notes than a player could physically play, you know, on the on the piano. So simultaneous, faster passages, superhumanly fast passages that the, that, that the player piano could realize, which a human couldn't. And maybe more important, very precise layerings of tempo. Right? That were more that make this kind of thing just like seem like kids stuff. You know, he, we're talking about 60 to 61 relationships, and then he got into like square roots and imaginary numbers and all sorts. Really went out there, and so um, uh, alarm will sound is doing actually uh, some sort of transcription of his early player piano studies number two and number six, which it's only, we've come like half a century and now finally some of the earlier player piano studies are actually playable by humans. Um, so they're going to do um, some version of that, I understand. But um, but I thought I'd play you my favorite one to close tonight's uh, presentation, which is his player piano study number 21, sometimes termed Canon X, because it's actually just a two-voice canon, in which the first voice comes in um, very low at about this tempo, and sort of clinking these notes in a low register, and I hope the system reproduces it well. And then, Moments after that, the second voice comes in in the high register, and it's a blur of notes. It's going really, really fast. And over the course of three minutes, and I know I'm taking, I'm going a little bit over time. It's worth staying for the whole thing to experience. In the course of three minutes, the, the high fast one slows down, and the low slow one speeds up until they cross. It's a it's an X, and you can. There's a wonderful moment where they feel like they meet, and there's this long tension where you're like, wait a second, I think the tempi are just, are they, they're approaching each other, oh, they're kind of, oh, they've overshot each other. It's really kind of quite wonderful. So let's listen to uh, Nankara's Player Piano Study uh, 21.
round. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.